Welcome to New Persuasive Words, a podcast of hope-seeking understanding. You're invited to listen in to an ongoing conversation about theology, culture, and politics between your co-hosts, Scott Jones and Bill Bohr. Regardless of topic, Bill and Scott offer intelligent insights and critiques. Sometimes funny, occasionally contentious, but always remaining friends. Here are Scott and Bill. Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And Bill, here we are once more into the breach, my friend. We have a piece for our time. I feel like uh, I'd like to somehow have a picture of Neville Chamberlain and Dennis Rodman side by side. I would love that. Dennis Rodman got pretty uh, emotional. Uh, Chris Cuomo was interviewing him. And it's funny as Chris Cuomo was talking to him like he's the freaking Secretary of State. He was up for it. I mean, yeah, this is Dennis Rodman. This is not like, you know, this is Dennis Rodman. No, like, like just he. You know, he was crying. Dennis Rodman, so he, he was a hell of a rebounder, though. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it's kind of, I don't know, it's just, it's uh, it's a fascinating time in which we live in. So I think, uh, you know what, it's uh, better than threatening nuclear war. I think that we can all agree on that. Fire and fury. It's better than that. Uh, a fine video of uh, the future um, Trump coastal North Korea. <laughs> <laughs> resort uh so we can only we can only see what's going to happen do you here. think if you're a dictator it lends to like bad haircuts and not really taking care of stuff because he's going to say hey you need to lose weight or that haircut's so yeah, like, really you know what i mean like i i just think like it it doesn't lend itself to self-creation hey melissa how, mussolini how about smiling exactly. no, no one said that or or hitler either just cut it off or grow the whole thing yeah exactly yeah, i don't no, think people no, people didn't say that no. i don't really no no no, or Fidel. How about a trim? <laughs> yeah, or or yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, no, you're right. I think you. Uh, yeah, it's a very. <laughs> but he loves his people. Uh, ah, sometimes you have to starve the people to love the people. Yeah, they starve them, put them in concentration camps. Uh, yeah, it's I, it's to help them be good students. You when can, he like, so you learn how to concentrate. Yeah, if I hear one more evangelical sh- shout about this, considering that there are thousands of Christians in concentration camps in North Korea, but. You know, you know, he's he's talented. He's a talented guy. <laughs> well, I mean, how many people could take and run it tough? I mean, it's tough, but how many people? Yeah. One in ten thousand at twenty six. I mean, it, 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 it is talent. Yeah, Genghis I mean, I, I, I was running a young life area at twenty six. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but uh, I did not. I did not execute one person that year. Not one. Not, not one. Not one. Just I, you know, on the front end of no, show everybody no, who's boss. I, I did, you know, I threw a kid off a trip. A but mercy, other than that, mercy no, killing. no executions that year. But who knows? Maybe I could have been more successful if a few people, you know, made a few examples. Well, we are beginning a series here. This is the first of what we think may be three episodes. Yes. And In response to, I think Andrew Stravitz asked us about our own views on... Grace, uh, sin, sanctification, sanctification, all these other a host of things. Because he was confused by what we maybe think, and and uh, rightfully so, <laughs> he should be con- confused. So our goal is by the end of doing this, we may actually know what we think about this. Exactly. So we're going to kind of look at the nature of maybe a little bit of uh, a little bit of anthropology here, the nature of human will and such. And so episode number one of this is going to be dealing with creation and the fall. I love it. All right. So why don't we start? Um, 
You know, maybe a little, I guess, backdrop. Part of what informs me on this, let me do a little bit of... Whoa, Phil's informed. I'm informed. I'm scared. (laughs) I'm scared, Well, all right, first of all, um, again, I grew up in Bible Christianity, and so, you know, I just lived and breathed uh, the biblical witness. And though it was not confessional Christianity, I think very much steeped in the idea of, of the good creation, but the devastation of the fall and original sin. Um, now also, but then I was a psychology major as well as a history major. And, uh, and so, um, one of the things that was really interesting was my own attempts to learn and to to glean what you could from that and as well as think about as a Christian. And then, you know, um, at Princeton, I became interested particularly in church history. And so the, the patristics was my, then my doctoral work drew, but studied a lot of that at Princeton. And then to throw in a little bit of the mix, um, how, you know, having studied with Jewish scholars, um, you know, spending two years in an intensive program with Shalom Hartman Institute, I think uh, that also has colored the way I look at these texts and look at, you know, on some levels, how do you, you know, I've been informed by both modern behavioral science, um, the Greek fathers, um, which was kind of a whole new world for me, um, still love Brother Augustine, but also how our Jewish um, friends and scholars approach the beginning of Genesis. I think all that kind of goes into the mix for me. So maybe that's sometimes why, Andrew, it's hard to figure out exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> I choose to not say anything that I'm informed by. <laughs> all, right. all right, there we go. I think that's the beginning. All right. So now maybe we should talk a little bit about how we approach Genesis 1 and 2. I don't think either of us would want to say that uh, we would not approach it as a historical truth, but we would we would approach it as being a deep theological and Makes psychological. a hell of a theme park. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so into that creation museum We stuff. actually, yeah. We, I love that stuff. We are thinking about putting our own little one right over here in the corner. Exactly. Yeah, I see? love a nice yeah. theme park. What is Doug Padgett thought this the thing looks bigger than... Deeper. It is interesting, though. I could see that how, like, just visually, if you're watching on the Facebook live feed, you... It does look deeper than when you come in. We're like, gonna, it's, just we're, a, it's an optical illusion. We're going to have to move that bookshelf to put the Tower of Babel there. Exactly. Exactly. Right. It so, is deeper. So, in other words, so we've, I, I've always um, said that Genesis 1 and 2 is so profound, it couldn't possibly be historical true. But it's, it's such a brilliant insight, um, not only to human behavior, but it's also this wonderful kind of vision of what God's intent is for humanity and creation. So, why don't we begin with the idea that humanity, according to Genesis 1, is created in the image of God, Uh, something that a lot of people have thought about. It's not totally clear as to what the intent of the writers of Genesis is. Not totally clear. Yeah, I mean, that's, what is it, Burkhauer said that you could write a whole... I I love, can I say Burk? This is the way my systematics professor, Burkhauer. (laughs) Yeah, Burkhauer. Yeah. He said something like you could write a whole Western intellectual history based on what people thought the Imago Dei was. Like, oh, yeah. If yeah. it's an age of reason, it's a reason age of creativity, it's creativity. It, like, you kind of like, and, and I mean, basically, I think I mean, a lot of scholarly consensus now is that it's an idol. You're, I mean, it's literally like an idol of God. Like, like you know, you have these idols of an emperor out in the empire to remind people whose land it is. And human beings are like icons or idols of, of God in the sense of. Well, that's the Greek. Well, I'm just I know, but I'm just, but the Hebrew root is close to idol there, an image, and, and 
I, this is basically uh, Jay Middle, Gary Middleton wrote a great book called The Liberating Image, Old Testament Scholar. And yeah, I mean, it's basically what he argues. And a lot of contemporary scholars argue that you had this is kind of the ancient Near Eastern totem idol of the emperor saying that this is. Well, and it, it's apparent if you go on, and this is the rabbis talk about this. In, in reality, the image of God seems to be that there are to be little gods. I mean, they're to go out and imitate the acts of creation. There is subdued. By the way, Jeff Carr, the gladiatorial combat with dinosaurs seems legit. By the way, uh, who would win, Chuck Norris or a dinosaur? Chuck Norris. Yeah, of course. But uh, I forget the punchline. <laughs> that's, there's, there has to be something funny in there. But no, I, I think this idea that, you know, what are the human? What are the humans supposed to be? Um, what's the human supposed to be? Inter- you know, th- to do well, they're to go out and subdue and do what God does, and that's the, even the idea of, of Shabbat is connected to that. The idea that you know you go out for six days and you act like little gods, but one day a week you remember you're not God. You know, that's kind of how the rabbin. That's a very crude summary of a lot of how the rabbinical literature talks about it. I like that. I'm I'm down with that. It would be extremely difficult for Abe Lincoln to be interviewed in that man cave. From Matthew Pacheri coming to us from Facebook. All right, Matt. It is. He's always he's always remarking on how how uh the, he's always like looking at our heads near the ceiling. Yours closer than mine. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, the Chuck Norris. So this idea. All right. So what? In some, I mean, image of God means that somehow, and even you know, the psalmist humans are made a little lower than the angels. Um, that seems to be. Um, you know, there seems to be something about that, that there's some kind of imitation of either of uh, something, you know, again, uh, there's certainly nothing in there about being a soul, or there's nothing in there about being a reasonable creature. I mean, directly, it seems to be the idea that humans are given the responsibility and the ability to create. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's just sort of shamar the garden right like yeah, also yeah. In, in the in the second creation account there's this shamar the garden or wait is that in genesis one no genesis two is shamar the garden protect it cultivate it right tend the garden although no take dominion though the idea of dominions in genesis is in the genesis one account right so but shamar the garden is in two okay but so and, and i think the two harmonize in that way i mean they're both kind of a you know you're put here to do the work you're the creation, you're the crown of creation, and therefore there's this kind of partnership with God, there's this relationship with God, um, but there's, you know, there's a sense where humanity is the crown of creation, and, you know, in some, for good or for bad, we seem to be, um, you know, from a scientific perspective, we seem to be, you know, the, uh, the, the crown of evolution, I guess that would, I mean, if the dinosaurs had a vote, they may argue against that. <laughs> True. Yeah, at any rate. So, um, so that's kind of, let's, let's just leave that there for now. But I think particularly in the East, uh, Eastern tradition, uh, this idea, you know, in, it goes, the Eastern Orthodox tradition even goes beyond this idea of tender of the garden, but that somehow the divine, that there's something of the divine that's reflected in, in our, in the image of God and humanity. I think that's an, that's an important idea. And that's why Eastern, the Eastern Church takes a very different road in its anthropology than the Western Church does, because that's in part, that's how they, they view the, the nature of the creation of humanity, the dignity of humanity, if you would. And it's led to lots of thriving democratic dignity in right. <laughs> Eastern Europe. Yeah, well, that's, I would also argue that's the last, yeah, it's, 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 it's ironic. It, it doesn't always trickle down. <laughs> no, 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 not so No, much. no, that might be, you could argue that's part of the problem with it being so, that's, that is one of the problems with it being a movement that's so nationalized. Whereas, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, you know, for good or for bad, 
the church was always at conflict, you know, with whatever individual kingdom it was in, more or less, whereas orthodoxy kind of... And now Amer- the American church is nationalized. That's right. <laughs> no, so yeah, I think that, that what's interesting here, too, is that for, well, both the East and the West, right, you have the, the sense that some, there's, there is a inherit like an there's a state of righteousness or purity before the fall or good that changes after adam and eve give liberty give you know ear and to the serpent and eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and that, that, that here's the fall and things change and mortality comes and sin i mean in the east or west looks at this a little differently and right the other thing should be said that you know the fall is not such a uh, it doesn't have the same kind of impact in Jewish thinking that it does in Christian thinking. Yeah, I think that's definitely true today. Although it's interesting because you have certain texts that seem, in, in, both in in the Hebrew Bible and in intertestamental kind of literature, that 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 seem to make a strong sort of original sin like tone. But, well, but that it, doesn't. It's not how the rabbinic tradition sorts. Well, out. and also, you know, and it's not the universe. I mean, there's so many different voices in the Hebrew Scripture. So I think certainly the Hebrew Scriptures bear witness to to human <laughs> uh, sin and and sinfulness. I mean, you could say the whole the whole the whole Hebrew story is one of failure. I mean, that's one of that's one of the trains. I mean, I think and what's what's remarkable to me if if I'd have been on the editorial committee, there'd been a lot of stuff that didn't make it into the book. <laughs> I mean, I think that's part of yeah, the it's part of the power. It's part of the power. Um, have you got this? Not- is a question from Facebook by Jeffrey Carter. Have we interacted with Walton's archetypal view of Adam and Eve and his cosmic temple view of the creation story in Genesis? Yes, I have. I like the kind of traditional framework theory better than Walton's stuff, but I, I like Walton's stuff. I mean, it's, I think it's thoughtful. It's a he's an Old Testament scholar, evangelical daughter's like a research scientist, and he I tries to got, got very, you know, where does he teach? Uh, he was at Wheaton, maybe, and then at RTS. Florida or something. Okay. Interesting guy. I mean, yeah. he, he, no, good, he's written some interesting stuff. Yeah, but again, I think there's a sense where I mean, the, the, don't when I say that the 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 Hebrew take on Genesis two is a little, or Genesis three is different. That doesn't mean that the the Old Testament certainly is a, or the Hebrew scripture certainly bear witness to human failure, to the failure to live up uh, to the covenant, the covenants that are made with them, and uh, even Jeremiah may be in some levels the most low point of Israel's theological history, at least in terms of scriptures. You know, says there needs to be a new covenant. This is uh, from a Qumranic hymn. No one will be justified in your judgment, not be no, nor be shown innocent in your trial a human being proceeding from a human being can he be righteous a man coming from a man can he deal wisely and flesh coming from the evil inclination can it share in glory and this is Henri Blochet in his book Original Sin illuminating the riddle he he says that Augustine's affirm and Pelagians or semi-Pelagians deny that that this this inclination to sin entails an inability to turn to the true God. The diagnosis of a bent towards sinning is closely linked with whatever stand is taken on free will, whether it's lost or preserved. In this respect, among the Jews, the Sadducees would appear as the foreigners of Pelagius. The Essenes would be on the opposite side, like the Augustinians here, and the Pharisees in between, the semi-Pelagian, if we trust Josephus's well-balanced model of the three sects. Which, that's... There's a lot of problems with that, what you just read there. There are so many problems, yeah. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. 
Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Including uh, reading back into the uh, first, reading back into it, Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, and Augustine. Well, I mean, I mean, if you say there's something like a, a strongly synergistic, like a sort of view that human beings are more flawed and tragic, or and then one that's relatively less, and one that's sort of in between. I mean, I don't think that's a problem. No, that, no, that's fine. And you know, you could say kind of the same thing is true in the you know pagan philosophical tradition as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I do think in some levels that you might, it might be, there might be only three options. <laughs> if you're talking about it, what are you, what are, what are human? Well, humanity, well, we're basically good. We're almost totally bad. And those of us, eh, you know, in the middle, I mean, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing to think about. And, and Christianity and Judaism may be dealing with these universal, I mean, the universal struggle, but you know, what is the, from, from whence come evil? I think it's an equally troublesome question from whence comes good. Blanchet has a footnote here quoting Pannenberg, which I think is really interesting. He said, Pannenberg offers a perceptive comment on the Pelagian idea of freedom. A will that can choose differently when face to face with the norm of the good cannot be, in fact, a good will. It is more than weak because it is not firmly set upon the good. It is already sinful because it is emancipated from commitment to the good. Pannenberg. So this is it's interesting because is a will even free if if free would be free to do the good right and if it's deliberative then then is is it a good will or is it even in the classical sense free if freedom means like you know for Aristotle if, if for an eye an eye not being able to see would not be an eye right so this, right. The, the human not being able to do the good is are you free is it is it really free and you know is the will good well you know my favorite I mean my most the most helpful work for me uh, from Augustine on this issue is like early on uh, in the Pelagian controversy um, before I think the Manichaean roots come out there in the, in the late time against Julian. But 
in I think it's letter in the letter in spirit. He says uh, the trouble is we are we are free to choose, but we are not free to attain. Which I think is kind of a sim- in a similar vein. There, I mean, that would be because really uh, just choosing from an Aristotelian kind of is not you know that doesn't get you there. You know, you have to actually attain. The yeah, kind. yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, I think. We'll pro- we will be coming back to this idea of what's the image of God and what's, you know, in terms of whatever Genesis 1 and 2 is trying to read back into the human story. I, I mean, I think, and those are important, and actually, we could even argue that just like Genesis 3, the fall has a much more significant place in Christian theology. I would also argue that the doctrine of creation, of the good creation, is a very important doctrine, particularly in the early, early church. I mean, that in some levels, there's so many commentaries written on Genesis 1 and 2. And the first thing that Christianity is actually arguing against in the end of the first and in the second century is both pagan fatalism and then also the kind of platonic or whatever you want to call Gnostic um, saying that the material world is evil. So those are those were two of the most important battlefronts in the second century. And I think that's something, the backdrop of both the New Testament, but the first interpreters of the New Testament are really arguing both for a good creation and some kind of human human freedom so yeah and i also think part of it too like if you look at i mean one way you could look at genesis right is retelling the story of israel right that yeah you certainly know, you you let the 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 interlocutor into the garden temple of god right it desecrates mm-hmm. the temple and you get cut up you go to into exile you're cut off from the land of the living right exactly. right so it's it's covenantal language right so yeah and then genesis one can be a vision of what the new creation and, and where, the new where's exodus. the bad way to go east right east East, Assyria, east of where do you go? East of Eden. So, right. like, so in some ways, like, yeah, I think part it's of not it, good if you're Steinbeck, right? Exactly. I mean, I think some of some of this is is probably again, it's it's sort of universalizing. One could argue Israel's own, yeah, absolutely. history of sin and redemption. Absolutely, it's it's a multi layered text, and I do think it's helpful. At least the Genesis one story, and again, the people who do the editors are the ones who are doing this, particularly from that post exilic or exilic perspective, which I think is very. And it's interesting too because Genesis doesn't. It's really I've been reading through of uh, uh, Edward Oakes's book, uh, A Theology of Grace and Six Controversies, which uh, he's deceased recently, a couple of years ago, but a uh, Jesuit, and he talks about how. And he has a section on original sin and evolution, and he talks about how this idea of like monogy, monogeny, like all people coming from a single pair. He talks about like the merits and uh, and downside of that, but he's like, but the Bible doesn't even seem to assume that because who's Cain sent out amongst? Yeah, right. You're, like, so it doesn't right. it doesn't even seem to like who do, who do Cain and Seth marry? Exactly. Yeah, so it doesn't no. seem to presume no, that no. what we often read into it, like the text is 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 not clear on that. And by the way, what they told me in science school, they married their sisters. I've never quite gotten over Well, you were telling you were I've in West, never, I've never in West ca- Virginia. I've never you? quite got over the trauma. Cousin, <laughs> cousins are okay, but not sisters. You were in West Virginia. I mean, It'd be easy. No, that, yeah. that would be the Mormons who did that. <laughs> we just so, but yeah, no, I think that's a great that's a great point. You know, um let's get to the fall. First of all, I think the the brilliance of Genesis three in, in so many different ways is you know this idea of of really what the heart of, of human human sinful acts you know what the what the foundation of it is, and that's you know um, it begins with a lie or a distortion of the truth, and you know it was funny in the early church. It was, begins with fake news. <laughs> 
But, you know, the early church used to argue what the mother of the vices is, and it it's all wraps around what exactly was the sin of Genesis 3. Was it pride or was it envy? And for a while, they were neck and neck, but eventually pride won the stop. But you, you know, won, the, won, the, won that battle. But you see both at, at work there, okay? Um, the desire to be like God is both uh, a sin of pride and and a sin of envy, and uh, and that how much you know again um, I just love the French uh, the French postmodern about uh, scapegoating uh, Rene Girard. Rene Girard. I mean, there's a sense this idea of envy is very. I mean, that's kind of he kind of recaptures that idea, but desiring something we don't have. Um, regardless of whether it's good for us or not, uh, desiring independence. Uh, you know, I used to, when I, when I give this, I gave hundreds of sin talks as a, as a youth worker. And the analogy I used to use was, you know, the, the person out doing a spacewalk from the, from the spaceship or from the, from the, uh, you know, the base, the, uh, uh, whatever. And they're out there doing the spacewalk and think how cool this is. And they say, boy, I would love, you know, the only thing that's keeping me from really enjoying this is this, this line that connects me to the spaceship. And if I could only just cut this line, then I would be really free. And, uh, of course, you, what would happen to a spaceman or spacewoman is the same thing that happens um, in, the, in the garden, uh, cutting themselves off from God. So the first sin is either pride or envy. I think the second sin is Adam's throwing Eve under the bus. <laughs> you know, there's a sense where the history of, uh, the history of humanity is blaming someone else uh, for, and not taking responsibility and not being our sister or our brother's keeper. And then it just goes downhill from there. Donald Trump said if, if North Korea was a mistake, he'd never admit it. He'd make up some other excuse. <laughs> well, there's a surprise. The, the Adamic tradition lives, lives. Yeah. So, so in terms of this idea of the original sin, it's, it's kind of a, it's really a, it's a, Genesis 3 is an amazing uh, portrait and insight of what every human faces and what every human falls short of. I concur. Okay. And then, of course, Genesis 4 is the history of human civilization, brother killing brother. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you, you I mean, one inter, one rabbinic interpretation of the whole, the sons of God marrying the... the Ben the, Elohim? The, the daughters, daughters of, of yeah. men, the daughters of... He's like, well, like, the, the one rabbinic interpretation is that this is kind of like the king's, uh, the, the Lord's night where if you, you know, like in Braveheart where you'd have to spend... Oh, you could. The Lord would have. You had the right of first night. Right. Yeah. And he's arguing that, like, it's it's the breakdown of, like, you, you have, like, the breakdown of individual humans, then of family, and then of, like, ru- of, of ruling authority. The cosmic authority. Yeah. Like, so, it's, so he said, they think, he, they think it's actually tyrannical. This is actually tyrannical rulers, not angelic beings. Although I think, I mean, you, I mean, it's. A, uh, well, I, I think it's like a. It's funny to me, it's a fragment of, of, of the greater story, the greater myth. And I've always wondered. Why did they just keep that fragment in? But it's because it's interesting. It is very interesting. Yeah. So, uh, any of you preaching on uh, on the uh, on the sons of Ben Elohim looking up on the daughters? That's why you have to be very careful during prom season how you send your daughter out. Exactly. Your house. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, I think that you know it's interesting. Also with evolution, do we in in pre modern times the sort of Augustinian reading is ne- is needy and tight, right? You have. You know, things are kind of hunky dory. There's a there's the fall, and then everything. The, what we consider the tragic marks of it, you know, yeah. the, the, like but you know, and it sort of assuming we know about modern science, that's that is a t- is a more difficult story to tell. 
I don't think so. If you've ever read Augustine's literal commentary on Genesis, it's anything but literal. <laughs> I mean, they had this really bizarre mythology of the spiritual fall and then the physical fall. So I, I, I yeah, but that the sense that human nature changes, like like what uh, we what we know is the things that we'd say are marks of the fall exist pre-exist right, humans. Right, death, death pre-exists. Death, debilitating yeah. diseases, like awful, yeah, you know, yeah. like red and new, red and tooth and claw. Like these things are 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 are. are do we really want? to say that the cost of original sin is women having pain in childbirth. Do we really want to affirm that? I mean, unless we affirm that, you know, everything's broken. I mean, if that's the, if you want to walk away and say creation's broken, but we also know that if it wasn't for death, if it wasn't for mass extinctions, we wouldn't exist. So I do think it's part, that part's problematic. But I do think it's helpful to say that, you know, some of the way the early church and even some of the way that gets presented in popular, the Sunday school Christianity, there's nowhere in the Genesis text that it says that God created a perfect world, that God created a good world, and with humanity, it was a very good world. But there's there's no sense where it ever—I um, mean, I think perfection gets implied back into it. This is also where I think the Eastern Church is a nice corrective, at least I think this idea that, that Irenaeus sees uh, Adam and Eve are like kids, that the fall is kind of a yeah, kid mistake. That, that is—no, that I think is better. I think there's something like— Creation's goodness lies not in its original perfection, but lie, but in its perfectibility. But then you have this problem, though: if human nature is essentially fallen, then your only alternative is Gnosticism. Because well, you, you have right. you have to because you have to then say that we are actually we need to be not redeemed, but we need to be fundamentally be, become something different than we are. Well, I, I think there's nothing wrong with saying that part of the salvation is a is a, a new knowledge, a gnosis, but to say that it's more than. Uh, but you would have to say that human nature needs to essentially be changed. From what the Gnostic perspective? Yes. Well, because sin is accidental in the true sense of the word, right? It's not so, right. Let me give you this quote from right. Okay, from our from old Reine. Reinhold Niebuhr. <laughs> the Christian doctrine of sin in its classical form offends both rationalists and moralists by maintaining the seemingly absurd position that man sins inevitably and by a fateful necessity, but that he is nevertheless to be held responsible for actions which are prompted by an electable fate. Here is the absurdity in a nutshell. Original sin, which is by definition inherited corruption, or at least an inevitable one, is nevertheless not to be regarded as belonging to his essential nature and therefore is not outside the realm of his responsibility. Sin is natural for man in the sense that it is universal, but not in the sense that it is necessary. Oh, interesting. So that's that's an interesting thing, that you, like this sense that sin... You, I think Niebuhr summarizes the paradox pretty well. No, I think there. that is a good summary. You know, it's interesting to me. I've been, because I knew we were we were heading this direction eventually, we've been talking, since Andrew raised the question, we've been talking about doing this. I've been watching Westworld is an interesting thing about, I mean, is it possible that even in terms of an evolutionary framework that humanity, humanity, whatever you want to call it, comes into its at least maturity when it has the possibility of contrary choice. You know, there's something about in the, um, the host are, are awakening when they can say, when they can at least begin to question their programming. And there's a, we were talking about, I mean, somewhere along the line, the human species went from being like a tree or an animal that glorified God by just being to having the opportunity to contrary choice. In other words, they chose, they chose somewhere along the line to seek and recognize the deity. And so I think that that's kind of an interesting thing to talk about. I think, I think that can be reconciled a bit with what Niebuhr is saying there. Yeah, I mean, I got it. I think like you have, like you have to, 
if you want to maintain something like a classical understanding, you have to say something like that somehow in the evolutionary process, sin, our, our own independence from the creator, like distorts or changes the direction of the ongoing story. Not It's not a golden age and then a, a decline. It's a sort of alternative trajectory. Well, I think there was a, somewhere along the line, our ancestors said no to God. Yeah, I think that's that's true. Well, uh, you know, is it inherently or inevitable sinful? I mean, that's an interesting question. I mean, in terms of, I mean, what is it? I mean, you can think about being part of the mass of perdition by saying that it's inevitable being born into the human family that you're going to sin. Yeah, I, I, I'm a total superlapsarian, so I have no problem with any of this. Like, I, I'm, on one level, I'm willing to take the minority report and just say God, or like, Jensen says this in Systematics. Basically, he goes the minority way with Luther, Bart, Francis, like the superlapsarian tradition. I'm with Jensen and them on this. Like, I, I don't, I think that God, in some sense, is the author of sin because it's, there's, it's a more glorious story where sin is part of it and overcome than if it's not there at all. Yeah, and I would be with the majority report on this one. I'm not comfortable saying God willed evil. Yeah, I mean, or, or yeah, I mean, but there has to be. I, I think like, it, I think it's too intellectually dishonest. Oh well, no, the, you no, it doesn't. It's not it doesn't have to be too intellectually dishonest. I think it's more theologically problematic to say that God's the author of evil. Well, our God wills a creation where sin comes into play that it can be overcome. I mean, it's like I when I decide to have children, I knew full well that there was all kinds of potential for there to be horrible things. I knew they were going to make mistakes. I didn't will any of that. I willed their being because that in and of itself is a good. And I willed their being with full knowledge that there's no guarantee good things are going to happen. But that doesn't mean that I willed you know them to come into existence so they would suffer and that they would do evil or have evil done to them. Right, but you choose them to suffer and be rather than not be i chose them to be and therefore for them to be means, means that to there suffer will, right. be suffering but that's i think a very different uh, I, I think, think i a, think especially if you're god and you got a lot of choices i think it's a tough one i think it's tough but, to well, overcome I mean, but i mean god's god isn't god's chief choice to be true to god's self does god only ever have one choice to be true to god's self right and that's why i'm a super lapsarian uh, that's why i'm an infralapsarian because i don't think god is evil yeah, I don't think God's evil either. Well, he, then, if he, but he's sure, then he's sure culpable for a lot of it. Well, yeah, I mean, of course. Like, well, but, I mean, part of, I think, God's own vindication is the overcoming of that. Yeah, but then I agree with the brother Karlantzov for how much evil is necessary. Yeah, one one child being shot by a Russian soldier is one too many. So, thus, we get into theodicy, which may be where we begin next time. All right. All right. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening. listeners. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of New Persuasive Words. Hope you enjoyed Scott and Bill's conversation and banter. Thanks again for listening to New Persuasive Words. 